In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Boricua. But Boricua is more than a name for a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure no matter where it may lead, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. And you can experience all that warm, welcoming, passionate culture set in a tropical island paradise without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Learn more about how you can live Barigua at discoverpuertorico.com. In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Barigua. But Barigua is more than just a word to identify a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. In Puerto Rico, you can experience a tropical paradise with world-class beaches. You can immerse yourself in the rich 500-year history of Old San Juan, where there are stunning forts, classic town plazas, and iconic monuments. You can indulge in a foodie paradise with renowned restaurants, seaside kiosks, and an innovative cocktail scene. And you can take in an abundance of natural wonders like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. national forest system, all without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more about the warm culture of Puerto Rico and how you can live Boricua at discoverpuertorico.com. Hi, and welcome to Travel Tales, a podcast from Afar Media. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Aislinn Green. I don't know about you, but I am finally beginning to dip my toes back into the travel waters. For example, I recently took my first flight in nearly two years, which took me to Alaska. Getting back out in the world, it really just makes me want to travel more. So, lucky for us, the creative folks I've worked with over the past seven years, comedians, philosophers, novelists, they feel the same way. So each week on Travel Tales, we'll hear from one of our favorite contributors about a trip that changed their life. Ready? Let's go. In this episode, we're going to find out what happens when a liberal, violin-playing British woman moves to the South on a whim to study bluegrass music. A far contributing writer, Emma John, is the Brit. You might actually remember her from season one. She shared a story about the joys and the challenges of traveling with a teenager in Venice. But years before that trip, in the early 2000s, Emma fell for the Americana-inspired music of bands like the Avett Brothers and Mumford & Sons who were blowing up at the time. And she desperately wanted to recreate that rollicking improvisational bluegrass sound, but her attempts at home in London did not go so well. So she did what any intrepid traveler would do. She bought a ticket to North Carolina with the vague idea of just figuring things out. Fate intervened before she arrived. On the plane, Emma met a woman who put her in touch with Fred, a banjo player who opened the door to the world of bluegrass and his home to her. Here's what happened when Emma walked through. from New York to Charlotte, North Carolina was full and I was trapped in the middle seat. The woman who had the aisle was in her 70s and so keen to talk that she was beginning conversations with herself. You would think that a single woman like me, travelling alone to a place I'd never visited before, might have welcomed the chance for some company. But I'm British. 
When faced with a shared public space, it is the inclination of my people to keep our heads down and pretend that no one else exists. Then, halfway through the flight, a steward appeared suddenly with a drinks trolley, and, unable to think of a single drink, I had pointed at the can of fizzy pop in front of my chatty neighbour and yelped, I'll have what she's having! It was a breach, and she knew it. Over the course of the next hour, I learned a great deal about Diane, her daughter, her grandchildren, and her house on the lake. Once we'd exhausted Diane's story, she asked why I was heading to Charlotte. You going to visit with family there, honey? No, I said. I'm going to learn to play bluegrass fiddle. A bit of explanation. This plane ride happened back in 2011. At home in London, I was a newspaper journalist and a classically trained violin player whose skills had rusted from lack of use. I'd recently been listening to a wave of bluegrass-inspired music, bands like the Avette Brothers and Mumford and & Sons. And for the first time, I'd heard a way of playing violin that could make you look, well, cool. So I'd googled bluegrass, discovered it came from the South, and that people largely learned through the process of jamming with others. Well, music is a language, right? And the best way to learn a language is to fully immerse yourself. So with barely a second thought, I got on a plane. I had made no plans of where to go or where to stay. It was probably the boldest and most whimsical thing I'd ever done. Diane's eyes lit up when I mentioned bluegrass. I know someone who plays bluegrass, she explained. I'll introduce you. And then, as an afterthought, I haven't talked to him in 15 years. Apparently, this person, Fred, had been a friend of Diane's very late husband. And it's fair to say that when we swapped email addresses at the luggage carousel, I assumed I'd never hear from her again. How interested would you be in a random stranger introduced by someone you hadn't spoken to in a decade and a half? I guess Southern hospitality has its own rules. Because a day later, I was sitting on Fred's porch drinking lemonade. He and his wife, Doris, had offered me a place to stay for as long as I liked on the basis of a single voicemail Diane had left on their phone. Doris, a full head shorter than me, greeted me at the door like a long-lost relative. Fred, who had white hair and bifocals, gave me a business handshake. He'd been born the year before the Wall Street crash, and he'd been a bluegrasser since his college days, performing on banjo and guitar whenever he wasn't working at his law firm. He barely played anymore, though. He struggled to communicate with his bandmates, being deaf in one ear and, as he put it, not hearing too good out of the other. His banjo was getting too heavy to lift. Actually, Fred didn't care for going out at all. He'd rather stay home, putting penny bids on eBay auctions or watching Fox News and indulging in conspiracy theories, both activities that made Doris mad. So when I went to my first bluegrass jam that night... I was alone. It was at an old-fashioned soda shop with a counter serving malts and cola and a small but appreciative audience in folding chairs. They faced the back of the store where an ancient gentleman in a cowboy hat picked furiously at a mandolin. He was surrounded by a haphazard collection of banjo, guitar and fiddle players, all men in check shirts and baseball caps. 
the music was flighty, cheerful, virtuosic. It coloured the air with nostalgia. It was also, by the way, nothing like Mumford & Sons. At the end of every song, someone would call the next one, and everyone jumped right in. Trying to get involved was like snatching at a fish in a tank. Every time I grasped the tail end of a tune, it moved on to another key and left me with nothing. I tucked myself behind one of the fiddlers and tried to make as little sound as possible. The songs were all about mountain mamas and childhood sweethearts and cabins in the woods, a sentimentalism I didn't feel, in a style I couldn't play. My foreignness had never felt more acute, especially at the end of the session, when everyone crowded round to hear my English accent. They were so excited that I was there and so complimentary about my playing that I felt even more of a fraud. That feeling didn't go away over the weeks that followed. I stayed on with Fred and Doris, who quickly became like surrogate grandparents, listening to Flat and Scruggs on their porch, while Fred taught me the tunes he loved note by note. Every day he would hand me another CD he had burned for me, with songs he thought I might like to play. I went to jams wherever I found them, whether it was in someone's garage in the next street, or in a bar two hours' drive away. The more I immersed myself in the music, the deeper I fell in love with it. I ached to be able to play it the way I heard it. But I couldn't. My classical training was a hindrance, not a help. I was so used to learning notes from a page that I had no idea how to improvise the solos that Bluegrass demanded. Scared to play wrong notes, I tied myself up in knots. You've got to stop thinking about this music, Fred would tell me. Just let go and feel it. But I didn't know how. One day, I drove nearly a 100 miles to a jam that happened in a tiny sandwich joint serving only food that could be cooked on a griddle. Music was accompanied by the background sizzle of eggs and bacon, and the place was packed. The number of musicians and spectators combined apparently tripled the town's usual population every Sunday morning. When I arrived, at 8am, someone was singing a chipper-sounding song about a local love affair. It was the old bluegrass story. Boy meets girl, boy gets turned down, girl dies. Dark ballads are a staple of the bluegrass repertoire, and though the graphic details didn't really feel appropriate for brunch time, something about that place, with its mismatched rocking chairs and lace doilies, made it the homiest I'd ever been. The owner told me that everyone here was family, which was lucky because at one point I went to the bathroom, stumbled through a wrong door and found myself in his living room. Failure seemed less threatening here. The audience, largely made up of retirement-age women, was like a celebration gathering of the world's best aunties. Genuinely thrilled with whatever you played, they even leaned forward to tell you so in the middle of songs. I took a few solos. The aunties applauded. I played a little louder. 
Good job, I heard. A tiny bud of hope seemed to bloom at the bottom of my stomach. My violin felt, for the first time, like a fiddle. I must have been caught up in the music because it was only when we took our first coffee break that I caught sight of Fred sitting in one of the rocking chairs. He and Doris had followed me up there in their car, worried about me making such a long trip and keen to see how I was doing. You sure sounded good today, Fred told me. I'd sound better if you were playing with me, I said. He said he hadn't brought his banjo, but I looked in his face and I knew this was a lie. It's in the trunk of his car, said Doris. I went and brought it in, and it didn't take much to persuade him to pick a few songs with the rest of us. The aunties loved him. From then on, Fred started coming along with me to jams. With his vast knowledge of the repertoire, he was soon a legend on the local picking scene. Lots of the other players were from his generation, and we were constantly being invited to lunches, suppers, cookouts. Doris was thrilled to finally see him out of the house. Fred and Doris remained my surrogate grandparents long after that trip. I visited North Carolina every year since. I was there one August, just after Fred had suffered a stroke. He still had some alarming ideas about politics, but he also had plenty of musician friends stopping by to keep him company. Doris was surprised he'd made it this far. If he hadn't started playing bluegrass again, she told me, I think we'd have lost him years ago. He passed away the following February. I put on the CD he'd given me when we first met. I listened to songs full of that old bluegrass yearning for family, for home and the mountains. And as I listened, I wept. Because thanks to Fred, I'd finally learned to feel the music. That was Emma John. Emma has stayed in touch with her North Carolina people, including Doris. She hasn't been back since 2019, for obvious reasons, but will return in early 2022, she says. And yes, she still plays the fiddle. In fact, she turned her experiences in the South into a book called Wayfaring Stranger, A Musical Journey in the American South. In recent months, she spent time in the British countryside, wandering the trails, and wrapping up her latest book, a memoir called Self-Contained, Scenes from a Single Life. You can follow Emma on Twitter at M underscore John or on one of her two podcasts, The Spin, a Guardian podcast about cricket, and The Breakdown, a podcast that, quote, reveals the bizarre, compelling, and often completely mad stories from bluegrass players past and present. Finally, it's time for Tiny Travel Tales, when we hand over the mic to our listeners. That's you. Now let's hear from Patty Deutsch from Pleasant Hill, California. I grew up in a family that travels. In fact, that was my dad's only hobby. So when he asked if I wanted to join them in Switzerland uh, as an adult, I jumped at the chance. The one thing I wanted to do was visit the Swiss wine region. 
being a Californian, I loved wines. And I was thrilled when he said, absolutely, plan a day. Now, you got to understand, my dad is very structured. He knows exactly each day. He's getting on that 843 train. He's going to connect with a 927 train, take a two-hour bus drive, and have lunch at 215 at his favorite restaurant, whatever. I'm not exactly like that. So when he said plan the day, I looked up on the map where the wine tasting region is. I figured we would take a train and uh, somewhat naively, I thought it would be like Napa, that you'd see wineries that you could just walk up to. So we start the day, we take a train from Chateau Day to Cui, which is on the shores of Lake Geneva. We get off the train and there is nothing. You see vineyards, but there is nothing. So I start walking into this little town and I can hear my dad walking behind me, snapping his fingers, you know, like, what, what's the plan? Patty, do you know where we're going? Yep, dad, trust me, it's just down here. Fortunately, as I'm praying, God, please let there be a winery. We get down into the town I see a couple of men uh, loading up the back of their truck. And in half German, half Spanish, half English, I walked up to them and I said, where would we find a winery? And they said, uno momento. So I figured I interrupted their work. When they came back, they said, follow me. That happened to be the back of a winery. They had never had Americans visit them before and they rolled out the red carpet. We got to taste straight from the barrel. They called the winery owner who came down to meet us, took us into their president's room, their tasting room, and opened up everything uh, that we wanted opened. At the end of a couple hours, they said, what was your favorite? My mom had a favorite, my dad had a different favorite, I had a different. They presented us with those bottles of wine with wine glasses with logos on it, with posters of the region, and they would not take a penny. They were so honored to have Americans uh, visiting them. It was such a great experience, and as we walked away, my dad said, you're planning the rest of the trip. That was listener Patty Deutsch. She and her 90-year-old dad haven't been able to take any big trips together recently, but he loves his family, she says. So they've rented homes in North Bend, Washington, and Moss Beach, California, where they've all gathered and explored new areas, she says. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash travel tales, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back next week for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast is produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff, Jen Grossman, and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Kresha. And a special thanks to Laura Redman, Irene Wang, Angela Johnston, and Nina Gainsler-Debs. 
I'm Aislinn Green, your semi-impatient travel-ready host. I can't wait to hit the road again and again. As we begin to explore the world once more, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours? What's yours? 